Well, this is week two of our What is the Gospel Bible class, and I am essentially working from this little book called The Gospel Precisely. This is a book that we give guests to come to our church for the first time. Uh, It's really cheap, so you could buy one on Amazon, but you could also pick one up back there if you would would like one. Um, What I am teaching is essentially what I would have done if this guy had sent me his pre-published draft and I could add things and take some things out and make it into the book I wanted it to be instead of the book he wanted it to be. Uh, it's a good book by itself, but I think this, these additions might be clarifying and helpful. So last week I tried to emphasize that there are many misconceptions of the gospel. Some of them are just blatantly false gospels, like God wants you to live your best life now and have everything that you want and it, you know nothing should ever go wrong in your life. That's a little bit easier to, to detect. There, there are more subtle false gospels and maybe even not completely false gospels, but um, improperly focused gospels. I think many of us have heard a gospel that makes the gospel a message all about you instead of a message that's all about Jesus. So um, some people when they define the gospel, might say something like, the gospel is the message about how you can escape hell and go to heaven. Well, that's not completely untrue, but it's very much out of focus. And when we're out of focus, we can start walking down really wrong trails. So I need new glasses right now. I'm having trouble parking the car because my, like, perception is off. I, I think that's what happens with our gospel when, it's un, when, when the focus is wrong. We have trouble orienting ourselves in our Christian life because we've been disoriented with this fuzzy conception of what the gospel is. We don't need an anthropocentric, man-centered gospel. We need a Christ-centered gospel, the, the message that Jesus is the king, not just of Israel, but of the universe. So he is the fulfillment of Israel's scriptures. He's the king of the world. Um, But surprisingly, through his death and resurrection, not through insurrection. So that's kind of what we focused on last week. And one big takeaway I hope that you had was when you see Christ, that word Christ, you should think anointed king, unless it's in a priestly context. Like sometimes in Hebrews, you'll see Christ and you should think anointed uh, priest, something like that. Christ, Messiah, just means anointed, and it can refer either to an anointed prophet, priest, or king. And in the gospel, Jesus becomes all of them, right? So we we need a gospel that is a declaration of the good news that Jesus is king. So if I could catechize you, give you like an answer to a question, if someone stopped you and asked you, what is the gospel? You would say something like, the gospel is the announcement that Jesus is king of the world. He rules at God's right hand over all principalities and powers and dominions, right? In dominions, that's just another word for other kingdoms, right? Does that make sense? We need a Christ-centered gospel. Now, Jesus' kingship will do a lot of things because Jesus isn't a passive king, right? Jesus being anointed and raised up as the king does something. And we'll get into the benefits of Christ's kingship in two weeks, I think, but, but I'd just ask you to consider if the gospel is not primarily an announcement of how to escape hell, 
and instead it's primarily an announcement of Christ's kingship, how does that shape the way we would describe a proper response to the gospel? Well, I, I just want you to ruminate on that. We'll get into that in a couple weeks here, and it'll become clear as we go. All right, but we're starting this chapter two. So why do we need royal good news? Because you might hear what I've been saying and, and think, um, I like the escape from hell good news better. Like, I want that to be central because that seems more relevant. Jesus as a king just doesn't seem relevant to me until he returns to earth because, you know, for I don't care what the Bible says. Even though the Bible says Jesus is ruling at the right hand of the Father, it doesn't feel like that to me, and I don't really care to communicate that to people. I just want to give people something relevant to do, which is to escape from hell and go to heaven. You know, I think maybe we wouldn't articulate it that bluntly, but we might have that reaction internally. Um, Jesus' kingship doesn't matter, we might say. So why do we need royal good news? Here's the answer. God created humans in his image to rule. Sin distorts God's glory in our image-bearing. Only a king who flawlessly bears God's image can carry God's full glory to creation, vanquishing the personal, social, and cosmic effects of sin. This should make sense to us if we know the story in the garden, right? Where did things go wrong when image-bearing went wrong? So we need a better image-bearer, a true image-bearer, the perfect image of God, Jesus. Now, I just have to comment, this is incredibly hard for me to uh, read what I have written here because it doesn't communicate the full complexity of the scholarly debate about the image of God, okay? So for those of you know, who know I'm in school writing on this, it is, you know, just the bane of academics to want to qualify everything endlessly to where it doesn't actually mean anything anymore. I'm going to try not to do that. I'll try to stick with what's here. Um, hopefully it'll be helpful. Uh, the gospel is sometimes narrowly described as a message about salvation from hell and the promise of heavenly salvation. Um, and this is generally how that goes. This is what I've been talking about. We need to acknowledge that because of Adam and Eve's sin, we all have a sin problem. As a result, you and I deserve death and punishment. God is by nature an impartial judge, so he's required to give us what we deserve. So death and punishment will be our fate sooner or later. But good news, God's fairness allows for substitution. Jesus was sinless, yet carried your sins. Simply trust that Jesus died for your sins, paying the price for you, then you can go to heaven. This is kind of the common articulation of the gospel. And again, I don't want to say that it's all wrong, but it's out of focus. And, and hopefully we'll bring this into focus. Um, primarily it's out of focus because it's man-centered rather than Christ-centered. Um, that should be our first indication that there's a problem. And really, that's the first indication that helps us detect false gospels. It's when they're really man-centered. When they're man-centered to the extreme, it's just really clear. Here, it's just a distorted man-centeredness. So I'm, I'm giving these qualifications because I think almost all of us have probably articulated the gospel in that way. And I'm not trying to make any of us feel bad about that or try to say that what we've heard is a false gospel. I'm just trying to say we need to bring it back into focus a little bit. Tim? Wouldn't you say that that, that is at least a partial response to the gospel yeah, I think it's a partial outworking of the benefits of the gospel is that um, there's eternal life or, I think, better fullness of life or something like that. 
Um, so this articulation fails to capture the multifaceted nature of the sin problem, and it fails to feature Jesus' kingship. So one of the major points in this lesson is that most of us, I think, are operating with a one-dimension view of sin, when sin is actually way worse than that. It's way bigger than that. But then what happens is we focus on this one central feature of sin, and it's the, like, this might sound bad, but it's the only feature of sin that we can't see Jesus fixing. And, and that is our broken relationship with God. So there are relational and cosmic effects of sin, and I think we can visibly see the way that God is restoring those things in Jesus Christ now, but often we only talk about our debt before God or something like that, and that's the only thing we can't see Jesus fixing. And it's the only problem of sin that most people, as we try to share the gospel, can't see. So it, it makes things a little bit de- deficient and one-dimensional when it's actually a three-dimensional problem. So we'll get into that as we go. Um, sin does separate us from God. This is often the way we talk about sin. That is a significant issue. But once again, that perspective on sin is anthropocentric, concerned only with the human side of the problem. I think you'll see a theme here. Uh, we don't need a man-centered articulation of the gospel. Uh, but what, what does human sin do to God? That's a question that most of us don't ask. We ask, what does sin do to me That and how do, it separates me from God? But what, what is the relationship between sin and God? Well, human sin frustrates God's aims in creation. In the gospel, God remedies the sin problem not only to save humanity from sin, but to save them for their original creation purposes. Sin is not merely a guilt or debt problem that needs to be overcome to rescue us from separation from God or from death. Sin also prevents humans from fulfilling God's aims. Uh, You'll see this in Josh's sermon today, is there's an individual who's inhibited from pursuing God's aims because of his situation. So God doesn't just save us from something, he saves us for And maybe that's even more fundamentally what salvation is about. In Genesis, humans are said to be created in or as the image and likeness of God. The meaning of this phrase, as I've already said, is subject to complex debate, but the intended purpose of the image bearing is clear. They are to rule the creation or or creatures as well as the earth. So humans are intended to exercise rule over the earth. Humans are created as the royal children of God who will represent him on earth, ruling over his creation on his behalf, all the while bettering the good creation and directing glory to God. So everything was created good, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't be bettered. God created people with a mission to make better what started out as good by representing God and ruling on his behalf. Shockingly, this representative ruling work will fundamentally be carried out by serving and guarding God's creation. So in Genesis 2, when Adam is instructed to work and guard the garden, that word translated work in most of our English translations, the next time that word pair shows up is in the priestly context, in a worship context. So it's interesting that even the language of working and serving is what is used to describe our worship. 
So there's a sense in which to rule rightly, we must be serving and guarding God's work, guarding it from whatever threats to God's creation and glory might present themselves. And then Eve, too, is supposed to participate in these duties by helping Adam. Now, our modern ideas about rulership uh, is not about serving others, but by being served, right? So if we think of someone in a position of authority or power, we think in terms of that person deserves to be served. But the kind of rulership that God gives is a kind not where we are served by others, but where we serve them. This is what King Jesus demonstrates in his earthly life and ministry, as he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It flips the script on what rulership is. The cross reveals who God is and who we need to become in keeping with God's original purposes. Representative rulers, not over other people, but over God's creation for its betterment by serving and guarding it. Um, At a minimum, when we talk about the image of God, we can say that humans are intended to be like God in certain ways and to represent him on earth, right? So I'm making a little bit of a shift here um, as we talk about what it means to be like God. Um, The Bible is clear in saying that humans are made in God's image and likeness, that we are not God. So sometimes we just think about the positive aspects, what being the image allows us to accomplish, but it's also somewhat restrictive. To say that we're in the image of God means that we are not God. We are not intended to display our own glory, but God's glory. That's a significant point when we think about our human identity. By the end of Genesis 2, very few points of conflict have been introduced into this human story. Initially, the woman was not present, so that's a minor point of conflict, but that's quickly resolved when God creates her. The couple are forbidden to eat from one tree— the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but nothing in the story so far indicates that their compliance with this prohibition is questionable. It's not until Genesis 3 that a concern is raised. A threat enters the garden. Now we're asking, will Adam and Eve carry out their duties to serve God by guarding the garden against any threats to his creation? What's more, will they maintain covenant faithfulness with God by complying with all of his instructions? Will they exercise their royal duties as God's children in keeping with their image-bearing identities? That's what we're supposed to ask when a serpent enters the garden. Will they guard it? Will they serve the garden and God's best interest by exercising rulership over this creation, this created being? Uh, The full significance of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil also is highly debated among scholars, believe it or not. Uh, But I think it seems best to understand the tree from two perspectives. First, the tree probably produces fruit that's to be eaten in the presence of God as a covenantal meal with him. Something like a prefiguring of the Christian communion meal, right? So this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they can eat of this tree in God's presence as a covenantal meal. There's probably something like that. But second, the tree probably symbolizes God's role as the supreme monarch who identifies good and evil behavior within the creational and covenantal context. So it's not that this tree has, this fruit has special magical properties about it, but this tree, this covenantal meeting site is indicative of God's position as the supreme monarch where he invites people to come and dine at his banquet, right? He is the supreme ruler. Adam and Eve are representative 
rulers. Neither Adam and Eve nor any other living creature has the kingly authority to determine good and evil. They have a derivative authority that must be carried out in compliance with the supreme monarch's rulings. So this, this tree is like the grand throne room where the, the rulings of the king go out. It's not a surprise, then, that the serpent tempts Adam and Eve to violate their covenant stipulations and to overthrow God as the supreme monarch. In fact, the serpent offers that humans can replace God by becoming like him. Remember that. The serpent says you'll become as God. Now, that's curious because we were already told that humans are created in the image and likeness of God. So they're already like him in a derivative sense, not in a qualitative sense. The serpent says you can be equal or even above God. Tragically, Adam and Eve took the bait, violating their covenant with God in introducing sin into the world. The fundamental human sin, then, is to make our own moral choices apart from God's directive. This is sin distills. God tells us how we should behave, but we do not trust that he has our best interests in mind, so we decide what is right and wrong for ourselves, and then we act on it. Like Adam and Eve, we, humans today, fail to trust that God's moral directive should be followed. As a result of this mistrust, or we could say a lack of faith, humans attempt to replace God as the supreme king and moral judge and instead step into those roles. In so doing, they fail to carry out the responsibility to represent God and his rule, to rule on his behalf as they attempt to exercise rulership, not over creation, but over God himself. That's what's happening in the fall. It's replacing God as the supreme ruler and taking this derivative rulership and trying to wield it against God. That's a problem. And we all face that. We all want to be king. We all want to rule over everything. We all want to be in charge. We don't want anyone to tell us no. Uh, I was having lunch with a guy a few days ago, or a few weeks ago now. He was like, anyone's going to be mad as soon as you tell them no. That's kind of true, isn't it? There's something that raises up inside of us whenever someone tells us no. We don't want that. We know that death is the rightful punishment for this covenant unfaithfulness. That's what God told Adam. How does that death take shape, though? And and this is, okay, a note of clarification. When we're defining sin and its effects, I think this is the best place to go. Why don't we see what happens as a result of sin in the garden and then define and think about sin in that way to start with? That's where we need to start. Surprisingly, the Genesis record records that the serpent was half right. He promised that Adam and Eve would become like God, knowing good and evil. And they kind of were, weren't they? They became like him, but in all the wrong ways, in ways that they weren't built to handle. It's like, uh, this is an illustration that I don't understand. Kevin was telling me he built a computer the other day, and he was putting parts together, and their software for one piece hadn't been updated, so it couldn't even run on this, even though it was sold as a package. So he had to buy an older part, uh, run the update, and then it could be used with the new part. When, when you have like software downloaded on something that it can't run, it's broken. It's like the humans download, downloaded godlike software into themselves that they couldn't run, and the results were problematic, we could say. It, it didn't work right. Things were not as they were supposed to be. So here are three realms that sin impacts. First, death invaded humanity's relationship with God, causing separation between God and his image bearers. This separation is pictured from two directions. First, the separation is pictured when Adam and Eve hid from God, 
And then second, when God exiled the couple from the garden. When we talk about the sin's sin's effect on our relationship with God, we need to talk about both parts. This is my concern. I think a lot of evangelical Christians talk about the second part. Your sin separates you from God. And, And we almost get this image as if God hates everybody and all things, and he doesn't want to reconcile with us. That's that's not completely true. Who is the first agent to initiate separation after sin? It's the human people. They don't want to be around God anymore. And, and I think that's what we need to begin with because that's where the Bible begins. When we participate in sin, it separates us from God, first, because we don't want to be around God anymore, and second, because it's a violation of who God is. So he exiles us. So you see how there are God is just affirming what we already decided. We want to hide from him. Now God's making it permanent until we accept his solution, right? We can't connive our way back into God's presence. So I I think if you reflect on that at great length, you'll understand that it's important to have both pieces there when we talk about the gospel and the need for salvation. Because it's not just that God is pushing us away, but that we are running first and he just gives us a strong wind at our back, sending us further, right? He's letting us do what we already want to do. Um, Our participation in sin fractures our relationship with God um, and binds our will. Sorry for all these spelling errors. I'm finding them all over, but that's the great thing about presenting on my laptop. I can fix them for next time. Um, Sin has this weird thing When we say yes to sin freely, it now binds our will so that we can't say no anymore. That's the way sin works. Um, Read the Lord of the Rings. I I can't apologize for talking about the Lord of the Rings this much. But, But the first time someone puts on the ring, they do it out of their own free will. And it gives the ring a power over them. That's what Tolkien's trying to communicate about sin. When when we freely say yes to sin, it binds us so that there's no freedom there anymore. And there are many choices in life like this, and some to positive effects, right? When you say yes in your marriage vows, you say that freely and you bind yourself to somebody. So sometimes we freely say yes to something and we want to be bound. Other times we don't, but that's what happens anyway. That's what happens with sin. Our inclination to hide from God and to separate ourselves from him is detrimental because we were made to be in God's presence. More than that, God is the source of all life. So it stands to reason that if we hide ourselves from God and we run away from him, we're cutting ourselves off from the source of life and therefore will inevitably experience death. The further we run from God, the less fullness of life-like existence we will have. Fundamentally, humans run from God because they don't love him. But Jesus offers salvation not only from sin, but also from ourselves who are bound in it. This salvation brings restoration to the relationship between God and people, giving humanity new hearts that can love God. Now, in offering that salvation and in his cross work, we'll talk about this next week, Jesus not only does something to us, he also does something that allows us to enter into God's presence. That's pictured in Hebrews, right? Second, death invaded humanity's relationship with one another. Adam and Eve were initially depicted as deeply unified. They were one flesh and shameless in one another's presence. I'll offer another quick side note here. One thing that irritates me is when people try to look at Genesis 2 
to establish something like gender roles in marriage or something like that, and they make man and woman, husband and wife, more different than they are the same. When Genesis is actually picturing how sane they are, how unified they are. And if we lose that, then we lose the deeply fractured nature of sin. If we say, no, they're already pretty different. No, they're bone of bone, flesh of flesh, unified in the mission of God on earth. Well, that's broken. Their covenant-breaking act with God impacted their relationship with one another. No longer were they unified and shameless. They, and here again, before God does anything, what do they do? They cover themselves because they're no longer shameless in each other's presence. And then Adam in particular blames Eve for the failure. So instead of saying, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, this is my one person. It's this person that you gave me, God, is the problem. So there's a fracturing of human relationships. This social fracturing gets worse as humans, one in particular, commits premeditated fratricide. I think it's good to put those labels on the sin that we observe in Genesis 4 because that helps us see how bad it is. Premeditated fratricide and a host of other sins against one another. Keep reading Genesis in sin after sin in the relational social dynamic is perpetuated. And then, you know, I know this, what a, this is a little bit touchy, but when we read the rest of the opening chapters of Genesis, civilizations are founded and embedded in those civilizations are patterns of sin that allow it to flourish instead of a godlike civilization in the garden that would have kept sin out forever. So there's a sense in which sin is personal, but it's also social, societal. We can use that term systemic because sinful people put in place systems that perpetuate sin. And that's what we see all through Genesis. As human civilization grows, embedded in it is social sin. Jesus came to solve that problem too. Not just your personal individual sin, but the social sin. Fundamentally, by enabling humans to love one another. Christ demonstrates on the cross what it looks like to love others in the most extreme way. Isn't this such the opposite of Cain and Abel? Cain loved himself, so he killed somebody. Jesus loved others, so he allowed them to kill him. It's a reversal. It's a great reversal. And Jesus calls upon his disciples to identify with him by loving one another. Third, death invades the cosmic realm, especially the earth, plant, and animal kingdoms. The earth and its inhabitants are impacted by the fall. Um, The earth is cursed by God as a result of sin. Sin has effect on earth. What's more, the animal kingdom will no longer submit to human rulership. In fact, animals will rebel against human rule, even killing God's representative rulers to their own damnation. Have you thought about that? Sin infiltrates the animal world so that image-bearing rulers are no longer obeyed. The entire cosmos is subjected to futility, waiting for the day that it will also be set free from bondage to decay, bondage to sin, into the glorious freedom of God's children, these royal representatives of God. God's children, his image bears and representative rulers will one day be renewed in the image of Christ and will again rule over the earth in a way that will not bring about its decay but its freedom. Sin infiltrates all three of these realms. That's something that we have to think about. 
sin is deeply fractured. And when we talk about what the gospel does in the benefits of the cross, we need to include all three of these realms in it, okay? Um, one, another brief side comment. You can't separate this earth and all that is in it, plants and animals and everything else, from sin or salvation. This is why the first covenant that God made with humanity after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden is also with animals and plants, the Noahic covenant. It's not just for humans, but for the entire cosmos. These things are significant because it gives us a bigger story of sin and salvation. Uh, us Christians are always happy to say something like, if you don't see how bad sin is, you won't see how great salvation is. And I think that's true, but sometimes we just narrowly apply it to the personal dimension of sin, and we need to expand it to all three dimensions of sin. The sin problem is bigger than separation between God and humanity, though that aspect of the sin problem should not be understated. All three facets of the problem should be taken into account. Um, all right. What's the, what's the overarching result of these three facets of the sin problem? It's that there's a lack of God's glory. So all three of these realms of sin's influence contribute to a deterioration of God's glory. When sin and death reign, and again, I want you to notice the kingly, kingdom-like language that the Bible uses for these things. When sin and death reign, God's representative rulers come under their rule. Worse, humans perpetuate the reign of sin and death by participating in it. Instead of representing God, people do not glorify God or show him gratitude. In fact, people work hard to suppress whatever truth about God might be evident to them. People are inclined to exchange the glory of God for idols. And ironically, those who bear the image and likeness of God make images that represent false gods, swapping an encounter with God's glory for a bankrupt experience. So instead of seeing what's evident about God in all of creation, where our rule is intended to draw that out and make it bigger, we suppress it. When we worship idols, the result is decreased exposure to God's glory so that our derivative glory is not mutually refreshed when we encounter one another. Instead, we experience the opposite. A downward, downward spiral into gross moral depravity ensues. When we worship idols rather than God, other humans and the remainder of creation fail to receive God's glory through us. We were always made to mediate God's glory to other people, and instead we diminish God's glory and we try to make our own glory big. Um, near, uh, I want to point this out, that a lot of this language comes from Romans 1, 18 through 32, where Paul really indicts everybody for these sinful behaviors. Before he does that, though, he quotes the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk regarding the way that a righteous person will live. That person will live by faith. Um, but just as Paul will later turn his attention to the lack of the knowledge of God in the exchange of God's glory for false gods, Habakkuk does this as well. This is the way that the New Testament authors use the Old Testament. It's like a portal that transports you into the fuller Old Testament context, and you can see how Habakkuk informs the rest of Romans 1. Um, Habakkuk depicts a day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the sea, in contrast to the useless carved idols that are only a cast image, a teacher of lies. You can see how Paul picks up on this language as he describes our problem and what Jesus is doing in redemption. 
We all need good news about a king because creation needs the restoration of a proper, a proper human rule. God intends humans to carry his image to creation so it can experience his glory. But image bearing has become distorted by sin. We need a flawless human king who can restore God's glory and humanity's brokenness. Then creation can be ruled by humans properly again, and God can receive the glory that is his due. Okay, this, this is why we need a kingly gospel. Now, I want to give you two notes on sin okay, that might round this out a little bit. These are not in the gospel precisely. Uh, it goes well with it, but it's from a book by this guy named um, Alvin Cornelius Plantiga Jr. Uh, it's called A Breviary of Sin. It might sound like a really discouraging book to read, but it will make sense of life if you read this book. It was published a long time ago. Um, by a long time ago, I mean, uh, I guess I didn't put it in there. And, oh, 1995. So I was four years old when this came out, and I can't believe it took me till this year to read it. You know, there are gr- great books out there. We need to, we need to read it. <clears throat> um, sin disrupts the way things are supposed to be regarding God, humanity, and creation. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation. Isn't it interesting that he identifies the same three realms of problems here? Um, And all creation and justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder at its creator and savior. Um, I don't know what I did with the misquoting here. It opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. You get the picture. It's all really, really good. It's as it's supposed to be. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Plantinga goes on to explain that sin's vandalism of shalom is ultimately aimed at God and that God hates this violation. Now, when we talk about God hating sin, I think we need to talk about it in this way. God hates sin, not just because it violates his law, but more substantively because it violates shalom, because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. God is for shalom and therefore against sin. When we talk about God hating sin, I think we can wrongly talk about it as if God just arbitrarily made up some things that he wants to love and that he wants to hate, and um, God just hates things arbitrarily. That's not the case. God hates sin because it disrupts things the way that they ought to be that leads to flourishing and fullness of life. Um, Sin's most clever ploy is to parade about as if it is the way things are supposed to be, all the while wreaking havoc on God's shalom. Sin pirates, or pirates if you want to hear, I think it gets pronounced differently in theological context, I'm not sure, but it pirates, it steals from shalom so that it appears at least initially to be good, true, and beautiful. We notice only those features that sin has pirated from goodness, energy, imagination, persistence, and creativity, but beneath the surface, everything sin touches begins to die, but we do not focus on that. We see only the vitality of the parasite glowing with stolen life. I, like, I love that phrase. That's why we can watch movies that really resonate with us. But if you take a moment to reflect on it, it's all about sin. It's really bad. Like these awful relationships, but we feel really good about it. You know, and sin glows with stolen life. And we think that it's representing the way things ought to be. 
That's why movies and stories are the best way to normalize sin in a culture because it shows this glow of stolen life. But sin cannot exist on its own. Like a parasite, it lives only by stealing life. When it's exposed for what it is, an enemy to shalom, it's subject to the divine penalty of death. For this reason, evil is in the business of disguising itself as good. This is another um, quote that's maybe helpful. Evil people are simultaneously aware of their evil and desperately trying to resist that awareness. That's every one of us. We're aware of our evil and we don't want to think about it. The Bible teaches that all people are subject to the power of sin and apart from divine grace are desperate to resist awareness of sin even while celebrating it. To do so, people are constantly disguising evil as good. Here's another great planting quote that will stick in your brain. To do its worst, evil needs to look its best. Evil has to spend a lot on makeup. Vices have to masquerade as virtues. Lust as love. Thinly veiled sadism as military discipline. Envy as righteous indignation. Domestic tyranny as parental concern. And you see that movement from the things that were like, yeah, those sinners, to, oh wait, that's me. Um, I'm righteously indignant about things. Or I want to rule with an iron fist over my kids. Like, we're all part of this. In his parables and teaching, Jesus rips off the disguise, exposing sin for what it is. What's more, the biblical authors warn that judgment comes on those who fail to turn away from sin. I think this point is important. This judgment doesn't always come from the outside, like fire raining down from heaven. That's how sometimes we talk about judgment on sin in gospel presentations. But that's not the way the biblical authors talk about it most of the time. Sin inflicts judgment on itself and its participants because it eventuates in the death of whatever it touches. By remaining in sin, people inhabit death. Sin is self-defeating. Being given over to sin is the judgment. That's why in Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed by God turning people over to their sin because it makes them less human and it leads to death. So it's not like God is standing over you. Um, You know, as helpful as this Edward sermon is where God has you hanging by a, a spider's web above the fires of hell, that's a good image, but it shouldn't be the only image. We are walking into the fires of hell as we persist in our sin. We, instead of, allowing life to break into our lives, we allow hell and death to break into our lives as we persist in sin. As the divine king, Jesus sets out to reestablish shalom, to create a society in which things are as they ought to be. This is the first result of the gospel, of Jesus's kingship. This collection of people who've turned from sin and the inevitable death that it brings, they face a new direction, walk a new path, They progressively journey more deeply into life as it should be, and in so doing, experience the fullness of life attendant to shalom. This society, Christ's kingdom, is what the New Testament authors refer to as the church. The church is an assembly of God's people who are given new hearts to love God, new eyes to see past the glow of stolen life of sin, and a renewed way of life that images God to the world. This society of shalom is the inbreaking of redemption, a first fruits of a harvest to come that will reconcile all things in Christ. That's what happens when people respond to the gospel. They become a new creation. That's how I want to talk about sin and its problem and what Christ does to fix it. Because I I think that is so much more hope-giving than simply saying you have a debt before God that you couldn't pay. 
and Jesus paid it. We need to say that, but that's not the only picture the Bible gives us. And in fact, it doesn't show us the immediate consequence of obeying the gospel, which is a new society that will inhabit shalom, that will embody the kingdom principles, the church. And, and I think that's why some churches, you know, it could be ours too, are so disordered in their life together. It's because they think only of my debt is paid before God and I'm good now. Not the gospel is Jesus ruling to bring about shalom again in his people, the church. And so now we put sin to death in all of the realms, in, in our, the way we relate to God, in the way we relate to one another, and in the way we relate to the outside world. We're, we're transformed progressively as we image God, as we grow into the image of Christ. I want to give a final note on sin and power. I, I think it would be too simplistic for me to say that the abuse of power is the root of all sin. You know, that's not helpful. Uh, but it is significant and important to note that sin regularly appears in the shape of power's abuse or misuse. In this role, um, so, and it makes sense, at creation, God appointed humans as his representative rulers over creation. There's a certain power and authority given to them. They're to exercise power in ways that would bring life and flourishing. Yet humans abuse power in the opposite direction. First, Adam and Eve failed to exercise their royal authority to expel the serpent from the garden. They abdicated authority. They abused power through neglect. Instead of ruling the creature, they permitted the creature to rule over them to devastating effects. Second, Adam and Eve and all other humans twisted power into coercion and force. Instead of unity, there would be division that would be marked by relational fracture and cemented through the abuse of power. This abuse of power would reach new heights with future generations as evil desires conceived, gave birth to sin, and eventually sin gave birth to death. I'm quoting James there for you. It's, it's through this abuse of power over other people. The abdication of responsibility does persist in the modern day. Extreme passivity and neglect of God-derived authority to cultivate an environment where the reign of sin grows is everywhere. We could call this laziness. We could call it refusal to serve, because that's how power is intended to be used. Uh, more obviously, the abuse of power persists in the modern day through uh, coercion. Instead of righteously ruling over creation, humans relish the opportunity to exercise power over other people. What's more, abuses of power are often designed or disguised to appear to be the agents of shalom. Some people even intend to bring about God's shalom through the use of power, but fail to realize that the means is antithetical to the end. So abusing power can't bring about God's purposes. It's impossible to bring about God's shalom while operating with the value system of the world. So what does the gospel teach us about power? How do you participate in the defeat of death and sin without adopting a worldly value system that grasps onto power or abdicates God-given authority? We look at Jesus, the king who exercises this power perfectly and rightly. We'll pick this up in a couple weeks, but to give one note of perhaps extreme relevance on this power and sin thing, um, this is like the big debate in our modern world right now. Okay, so let, let me boil this down too simplistically. On the one side, you have these people who are saying critical race theory and all other critical theories are great because they show us where there are power imbalances. And here's the solution. Let's transfer power from one side to the other. That is, 
this power sin thing that I'm talking about. The solution doesn't work because Christ's relationship to power that shows us the solution is not to grasp it, but to relinquish it. That's how Christus Victor, his victory over sin and death works. Well, critical race theory and other critical theories might be helpful in showing, yeah, there are power things where people are sinning in different ways as it relates to power, but they're providing a broken solution that will actually just keep that downward spiral going. Well, on the other side, you have people saying critical race theory is bad because it's bad, and, and I'm inclined to agree with them. But then very subtly, they adopt the same mode of grasping onto power and trying to defeat that grasping onto power with this grasping onto power. Both of them are wrong. And, and this is just one example of how it surfaces in history. Look through history. This shows up over and over and over again. These are just the labels that we're putting on it in this five-year period of American history. Well, Jesus shows a different way to set things right. And it won't be either through laziness and abdication of what God made us to be, nor will it be through grasping onto power and coercing others into being who we want them to be. Instead, it will be walking the way of the cross, the ironic victory of death and resurrection, and um, the renewing of divine grace that breaks into people's hearts. So that's, what we, that's how we want to talk about it. Um, that's how the gospel relates to these things. We're out of time, but we'll pick up uh, next week carrying this forward.